Yeah. What is this white horse? Because <laughs> the white horse keeps showing up. Yes. yes. But I can't find it on an LDS official website. Oh, and it's changed. Oh, the the the, the white horse prophecy. Without going a lot into a lot of detail, it was a joke. Uh, did Joseph had, was joking to some people. They asked him where he got his horse from, and it's like he got it out of that cloud. And 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 there's a whole lot of stuff that. But it's one of those persistent. I, I, I put the white horse prophecy along with the idea that uh, the prophet has Danite assassins that are going to go out and kill people. And 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 we'll actually talk about the Danites in. Uh, in a couple of weeks. But it was mixed up with this uh, uh, constitution by Fred uh, yeah. thing, and I didn't understand. Uh, yeah. Where does that come from? The, the, the constitution by hanging by a thread? Uh-huh. Yeah, see, the, the, that one has a little bit, a few more legs, but they have been, but because the, the tradition is always, and I think most of us know that, that there has been a, always a, a myth and a rumor and everything that at some point the constitution would hang by a thread and it would be the elders of Israel that would come forward at the last moment and say it. And as they tried to track that down and ascribe that to Joseph Smith, there was some sort of thing said that, but it's never been that quote, and it's always been secondhand. Except for I actually was in a meeting in Pennsylvania at Valley Forge when President Benson spoke, and he was the prophet at the time, and he did say that the Constitution would hang by a thread. And, and then he said, if it be saved, and he paused and said, if it be saved, it would be by the elders of Israel. So I actually heard a prophet say it. Well, and, and, and that's where it usually ends up. You know, when, when people try to say, I'm going to try and understand this, the Constitution hanging by a thread, they go back to President Benson. Almost always. You, you track the quotes that they're going, and that's and, and that's exactly the way he said. And if it would be saved, it would be that, which is a di- which is a different kind of take on it. Now, in in a sense, I believe that there's an element in which that that is completely true. And I, I think back to the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you remember that uh, uh, they were pleading with the Lord to say, "Don't don't you know burn the city?" And He says, "Okay, give me twenty five righteous people." Okay. Ten. Okay, five. Okay, get out of Dodge. (laughs) Basically. And I think in some ways the Constitution has been saved by the righteousness of saints, the the leaven in the lump. Uh, Because I think some people try to make it a much more dramatic, you know, Washington's on fire and here come the the elders, you know, maybe with the LDS insignia on the side of their horse and they come riding in there and we're going to save the thing here. That these are all, always been a much more subtle, quiet, peaceful kind of thing. Nothing so dramatic uh, as that. So, and because they're having people out there saying, "Well, that's why they think Mitt Romney. You know, maybe he's the he's the thread that's going to." No. So, all right, but it, but it does stir everything up, and, and you're going to get people examining all these myths and everything. And I think this is really a chance. The thing that I've loved about this whole dialogue is that it's forced us as members to have to look at what we believe. And it's forced us to have to re-examine myths and stories that we've heard and get answers to them to be able to explain it to our kids and to our neighbors and everything else. If nothing else happened as a result of this presidency run, that would be awesome. Because so often, there have just been so many times over the years, that, and you've heard me say this, that I kind of get upset that sometimes people say, well, uh, I don't understand uh, the blacks and the priesthood. And the response has been, well, it's not important to your salvation, don't worry about 
and has made them look worse. There, there are answers to all of these things, and we've just sometimes as saints been lazy to not have a solid answer and have researched it and to know what it is that we're talking about. We have an answer to that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like to hear it as well. The, 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 what, what it is that happened with blacks in the priesthood? Yeah. Let me give you the two-minute version. Uh, it turned out that uh, for years and years, this, for, for a number of years, probably up to about the 40s, uh, 1940s, this was always seen as doctrine that described itself back to Joseph Smith. That Joseph Smith had, had said that for whatever reason we are not ordaining blacks to the priesthood. Okay? Then around the 40s and 50s, they really started doing their research and saying Joseph Smith never taught that. In fact, it turns out that it was more policy than doctrine. And so now it fell on to President McKay, who did a lot of praying about it. And his answer was to uh, Paul H. Dunn and a, a number of others said, this is not doctrine, this is policy, but I've prayed about it and the Lord keeps saying, for whatever reason, not yet. But there was a lot, of, but we were watching these changes occur um, and then it really kind of fell ultimately to President Kimball who would then take this to the, to the Lord. There's a, I tell you what, if you're interested... The very best article, in fact, what I'll do, uh, Stacy, we probably ought to post this one. Uh, there's an incredibly great article by Edward Kimball, uh, President Kimball's son. And he, walks, and he walks through the whole history of this thing. And then, because he was intimately involved with his dad, and his dad walked him through what was said in presidency meetings and, and discussions that were in, in Quorum of the Twelve meetings as the policy began to be ready to be changed. And it's a magnificent article and it lays the whole thing out. And what I'll, what I'll do uh, is that we'll post that on the, the website. So that you can, It was actually posted in Mormon Studies Journal. Uh, and, and at the end of that, you just want to stand up and shout. Because it's just like, it's so cool. Because it lists a lot of times the, the reaction of the, the members and even all the general authorities when they suddenly realized that this was about to occur. And they were just, and, and Neil Maxwell was in tears and it's a great article. Yeah. So I, I've always been taught it goes back to Cain. No. That's not. No. That, that, that was part, what had happened is that we had a policy and we thought it was a policy and then there were a lot of explanations to try and explain it. Had nothing to do with Cain. Had nothing to do with the fact that they were neutral in the war in heaven. And I mean, there were there were a lot of beliefs trying to explain this. And even Bruce R. McConkey, who had written extensively about it. When the revelation came out, he says, everything I've written is wrong on this, on this topic. This fact, revelation changed it all. But the fact that the Lord hung on to it for a while indicates that there was merit to it. it was what was merit? And, and President McKay, sadly enough, President McKay's conclusion was, the reason why I can't, get the, I can't get confirmation from the Lord to change it yet is that the people themselves are not ready for, for the change. That we weren't ready. That was his conclusion. There were members of the 12 that weren't quite ready, yeah. And, and that's why President Kimball knew for months that it was going to happen and waited until he had absolute unanimity of the 12. And then the morning that it was actually announced, they had a meeting with all the general authorities. And President Kimball said, if I had not walked out of that meeting with 100% of, uh, 
support of all of the general authorities, we'd have held off on, on the announcement of it. But only when he, they held the vote, he saw that they had it, he felt the, the unanimity, that's when he turned to Elder Tanner and he said, tell the world. And then the word went out. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We don't look at it out of eyes of 1950. And if you were to go into a Southern Baptist church in 1950, you wouldn't find right in the same congregation typically. And so, yes, for us, we have a paper trail, and people kind of fall on that and really hold that up. But when you look at the whole culture of the United States, the United States... Wasn't quite ready. You you know, and the thing that's fun about this, this is a perfect place for us to walk into today's discussion. Perfect, perfect segue. I could not have set this up any better than what you guys just did. Okay. Um, Let's turn to DNC 90, if we can. I guess we can. (laughs) Duh. We don't have a lot of historical data on Section 90 about when and why this was given. It's one of the few that we don't do. We just don't have much historical stuff. Other than the fact that it's given in March uh, 1832. Uh, Thus saith the Lord unto you, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. This just had to always be a comfort, didn't it? You know, but it also gives you an idea that the Lord didn't have to say to him once in the grove, thy sins are forgiven thee, and then he was good after that. It's on a regular basis. Okay, your sins are forgiven thee. It's like, it's like sacrament meeting. Okay, I took the sacrament. I'm uh, good again. Uh, Got to go out and do my best. Okay? Therefore thou art blessed from henceforth that bear the keys of the kingdom given unto you, which kingdom is coming forth in the last day. Verily I say unto you, the keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you while thou art in the world, neither the world to come. Okay, now, let me ask a really stupid question. Okay? What's a key? Authority. Just in the general sense, what is a key? It, it's, it's, some, it's, a, it's something that enables us to unlock, open a door, open something... Then as a result of that, we're able to access everything that's inside, right? And without the key, you can't get in. doesn't mean that the stuff isn't there. It just means that you don't have access to it because you don't have the key. Okay? I've got a, I've got a house right now that if we, we, we can lock the front door, then I can unlock the front door, but that doesn't necessarily mean the other lock doesn't lock when we walk out. And so I can rattle the doorknob and I'm fine, I go outside, I come, I go to get back in. I need another key for the other lock. I have to walk around to the back of the house to get into the house but I just walked out to check the mail. Guys <laughs> <laughs> mean nuts. If you're replacing those locks and just have their own volition decide to lock me out whenever they want to. <laughs> okay? Now in the church when we start talking because there, there's some terms we're gonna throw around. Keys Authority, priesthood, in this sense, what's a key? Yeah. It's the authority to direct the work. Okay. Now, 
Where do we get the keys? It doesn't make sense. You know, uh, I've got I've got the keys to the building. Isn't that cool? That this key that I had to sign in blood. It's the key that it, it unlocks every building in the state. You know, if I lose this, uh, my firstborn is second. <laughs> but it was a pretty important key. Okay, now, but it had to be given to me by a person that was authorized to give me the, the key, uh, Mike Walker on the High Council, who was then authorized by President Wilding. Okay, and, and since these are the church's buildings, who authorized President Wilding to be able to give, authorize Mike Walker to give it to Kevin Hinckley? I mean, ultimately, you're going back to, you know, the prophet who then got it from, and that's where there's the question, okay? So when we talk about priesthood keys, he's being said, the keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you. What, what keys is he talking about? Priesthood, yeah. The dispensation. This dispensation, right? And, and because it's the last one, it's the dispensation of... You ever thought about that? Dispensation of the fullness of times, meaning what? Everything, the fullness, everything from all the prior dispensations has been brought forward, and all of this was given to Joseph Smith. Okay, now, and he's saying these keys will never be taken. Well, that's odd. Yeah. Does the fullness of times mean it's a compilation of everything that's come before it? Yes. Or does it mean all that there is? Uh, everything that's come before. Okay? So that's why it is, and, and again, in, in a few weeks we're going to talk about, or maybe it's in January. <laughs> but when we talk about the keys being restored in the Kirtland Temple, we're going to talk about specific keys that are going to be given. Okay? Now, Along with those, the, that I want you to... Here's a... George Q. Cannon uh, said this. Now we may come to this conclusion that God, having once bestowed the keys of the holy priesthood on man here on the earth for the building of his church, will never take them from the man or men who hold them and are authorized... And will authorize others to bestow them. If you will read the history of the church from the beginning, you will find that Joseph was visited by various angelic beings, but not one of them professed to give him the keys until John the Baptist came to him. Okay? Think about that moment in the, in, in the little cabin, and Joseph is saying, okay, I haven't been really acting very prophet-like. I'm now 17. I still need to know if I have a commission with the Lord because I like punched these guys out while I was trying to get them to dig a well. So he's going to pray and here comes Moroni. Here's the light. Here's Moroni standing in front of him. What keys does Moroni hold? Is he probably an elder? Think he holds a Melchizedek priesthood? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And he may have held the keys to his dispensation. Could not have Moroni have then said, oh, no, by the way, there's a church coming, you're going to need the Melchizedek priesthood. While I'm here, just for the sake of efficiency, let me tell you where the plates are, and by the way, here's the Melchizedek priesthood. 
And by the way, here's the keys of uh, sealing. Because he may have held the sealing power of Elijah. Okay? Let's just get it done all at once. It's like an all-in-one kind of thing. And here, okay, we're ready to go. From an efficiency standpoint, could not have Moroni done that. Could not have Moroni. Could have yeah. He also, well, I learned in Sunday school yesterday that the Aaronic priesthood wasn't actually with the people in the Book of Mormon until Christ came, but he gave them that. So he also held the Aaronic priesthood. He, so could he, couldn't he have said, you know what, and by the way, here's the Aaronic priesthood. Let's you, you can go baptize. Now, so here's the question. Could he have done it? Yes. Could have. Why didn't he? He wasn't authorized. Why? Who was authorized? All right. Now, tell John the Baptist came. Moroni, who held the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim. Moroni did have keys, right? From George Q. Cannon. General Conference. I've got the quote on the bottom here. Moroni, who held the keys of the record of the stick of Ephraim, visited Joseph, and he had doubtless visits from Nephi, and it may have been from Alma and others. Picture that one. Oh, who's that? I'm just talking to Alma. Wow, he's a great, great guy. Um, and though they may come and had authority, holding the authority of the priesthood, we have no account of their ordaining him. Neither did Joseph ever profess, because of the administration of these angels, to have authority to administer in any of the ordinances of the kingdom of God. Well, and which is very, very true. In a sense, couldn't the Savior have given him all that stuff in the grove? Sure. He didn't. Why? Exactly. So part of it was his learning. In other words, we're not going to give you the keys yet until you're ready. And obviously some of the keys like gathering of, of uh, Israel, Abraham, uh, the, uh, Elijah, that would come in the Kirtland Temple, he was still preparing a prophet to be able to handle those. But he could have given him the authority earlier and didn't. But John the Baptist makes sense because to anybody who was Christian, the fact that he received the authority from the person that baptized the Savior, that kind of takes away a lot of questions. Yeah, because that, that's, that's our link back. Yeah. Isn't John Baptist the direct lineage of Aaron? He was, and all of those are true. But, but specifically, why would it be John the Baptist who would come back and give the Aaronic priesthood? I believe that the Savior has given to specific individuals authority over their... Their, their stewardship, right? Their stewardship. And in order to preserve the unity of, of all of his workings. He wants these individuals to exercise that authority which is given to them in the proper time and sequence. Because the Lord, this is the way the Lord works. We're going to talk about order in the kingdom. An order of the kingdom says, I will give you a stewardship. This is your job. Here are the keys of authority to execute that job. And I will not Get in the way of that. Your job is to exercise the keys given you to fulfill that responsibility. So the short answer is, why was John the Baptist the one who gave Joseph and Oliver the Aaronic Priesthood? Because he had the keys. It was his responsibility. 
The Lord had vouchsafed with him, said, it's your job. And so when the time comes, even though Peter, James, and John could do it, Moroni could do it, he held the keys. That's his responsibility to fulfill that job. Bishop holds all of the keys within the ward. Can he walk in and teach any primary class? Why doesn't he do that? Because it's your job. Or the Relief Society. Okay, that's your job. You obviously have the authority to bestow an authentic priest on someone. Yeah. But don't you have to have be authorized to do that? I, I hold, I, I'm a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood. Could I not, don't I have the, do I have the authority to ordain my wife to the Melchizedek priesthood? Because, I, because if you look at it, it's like I can, or, I can bestow the Melchizedek priesthood. But why can't I ordain her to the Melchizedek? Well, first of all, because that would put all of God's power in one's hand, and God's power is split between Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father, and it's improper for one person to hold it Yes, but we're not going there. You're exactly right. Okay, but, but what would happen? But, but not, not only that, let's say that it wasn't my wife, let's just say that even somebody that was worthy within a ward, and I just said, you know what? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ordain you to the Melchizedek Christian. I, I, I can do that, right? What am I missing? I'm not authorized by by the by the same president who holds the keys. So, so there, you know, you, you watch that process going on, and 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 yet it's always then given, it's delegated to somebody within that sphere. Even the apostles you know, hold all the keys, but they're not allowed to exercise those. Yeah, it is. And that's that's where always the question, because one of these days, President Monson is going to die. And when he dies, what will happen? Well, where are the keys? Collectively. Collectively among the twelve. And that's why then, when if, if, if nobody else died, and it would be President Monson that died, then, then they would hold a meeting that next Thursday after the funeral. And, and uh, uh, President, uh, uh, trying to think, probably Elton Perry would probably nominate Elder Packer. There would be a, 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 a sustained vote. And then the 12 collectively would place their hands on President Packer's head. And, and those keys would then rest again with, with that person. It just, it's just very, very smooth. Yeah. I like that. I like that. We all have keys in the car, but only one is in the passenger seat at the time. Or driver's seat, yeah. You know, some years ago I served at the council of President Jones. I was interested in the fact that when we received our annual letter, which was Boyd K. Packer, and said, this will be when your state conferences are, and you'll have a general authority on this conference. So the state conference, didn't realize that, the state conferences are apostolic. Under the direction of the Quorum of the Twelve, that's, that's true. That's true. Okay, so, uh, and by the way, uh, so I'm aware that when I was made a bishop, I, I was ordained a bishop. So, in my ward, who's the bishop? Bishop Bryson is the bishop, even though I'm a bishop, and, and we have other former bishops. None of us are, are authorized to exercise keys that have been given us at one time to act in that office. Only one bishop. There's only one 
One driver. Okay? Now, he never baptized anyone nor attempted to lay hands on for the reception of the Holy Ghost. In fact, he never attempted that that we have a count of to exercise any of the functions of the holy priesthood. He was a prophet, it is true, but a man may be a prophet and yet not have the authority to administer in the priesthood until the keys are given him. Now, Joseph, when he, passed, when he was killed, when he was martyred, continues to hold the keys of this dispensation. Those never left him. We can be a little bit... Uh, sympathetic of those saints in Nauvoo, we talk about the martyrdom probably next spring, we can be kind of sympathetic uh, about the people that followed Sidney Rigdon when Sidney Rigdon showed up because Sidney Rigdon was one of those. The keys will never be taken. Uh, verse 6, uh, Sidney Rigdon Frederick G. Williams, their sins are forgiven. They are counted equal with the in holding the keys to the kingdom. Because they were the first presidency. Okay? Now, Sidney Rigdon, or Frederick G. Williams apostatized in Kirtland. Sidney Rigdon would apostatize in Nauvoo. But the first presidency collectively holds that keys, but there's still only one person in the driver's seat. Okay? It's the prophet. Now, let me just walk this one step farther, though, because I, I, want, I want this to kind of come home to roost to you. Oh, this is in Journal of Discourses. Now, we're talking about priesthood keys. I want this to become really personal to you. Okay? With these priesthood keys, the priesthood keys allow someone who has been ordained to the priesthood to be able to exercise authority in their in their area, their sphere, their responsibility that's been delegated to them. Okay? Now what about motherhood? Does motherhood hold some keys and some responsibilities? It happened in the garden. It did. It did. So does that mean, though, that you are not enabled to exercise the motherhood keys until the priesthood authority enables you to do that? Yes. Why? In the temple. But in, on this earth, can't any, any woman, that is, can't she, if she's got all the right stuff working and she gets together with somebody else and all the right stuff's working, can't she get pregnant? Can't she become a mother? Are those her kids? The problem with um, having children out of wedlock is that you are misusing the power that you have as a woman, as you're part of God. Right. You're misusing that power. It's just like a man misusing his priesthood or using his priesthood when it's not worthy. Because okay. it has been stated that we are supposed to bear children with that covenant in the temple. That the, the way we're supposed to do it, but God is sent here on earth because we're too much to I get it. That now, you just have to be married. Now I'll say though by society, society would say, okay, I don't care if it's a I don't care if it's a it's a hippie wedding on the shores of Oahu. Okay? By the in the law, the eyes of the state, you're now married and you can now have kids legally and lawfully, and that's 
recognized even by the church. So where did the priesthood keys authorize a mother to have kids and to have uh, and to be authorized to do that? In the temple, meaning what? Where where can have those kids? Because you're commanded to go for it. In the eternities. In the eternities. Only those authorized by the keys will get to have eternal increase. That's all the blessings of Abraham. Yeah. Well, it's the, the words of the ceiling, um, you know, when I was power to and it's eternal blessings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in other words, to, to be able to, to have eternal increase requires priesthood keys given to you as women to authorize to be able to use the marvelous blessing that you have to have kids eternally. Very cool. Okay, now, let, let me add one more thing to this. So, do, let, let's just say on earth, okay? Do we have, if, if, I'm, a, I'm a parent and I'm a grandparent. Do I hold keys over my kids? As a grandparent, are there certain keys and responsibilities that I still have to my kids and grandkids? A little thinner, a little murkier line, right? So what, what responsibility do I have that's been delegated to me? What responsibility do I have over my kids and grandkids? A righteous example. Righteous example would be one. Stewardship. Okay, what's my stewardship with them? Because I'm, I'm the patriarch in the family, right? Okay. My father called them because Sunday to check on me and asked me if my temple recommended for it. Wow, really? <laughs> he asked my husband if it was okay if he asked that question, and I, of course, hit my dad for asking because that's not his, my husband's business. <laughs> I have my own issue. Apparently. <laughs> That's right. Now, because there are times when I'm, like I sit next to my kids and grandkids at church. It's one of those little tender mercy blessings I've got going on here. Okay? And they're going to then discipline their kids based on their best knowledge and understanding. What's my job as a grandparent sitting there watching that? To shut up. <laughs> Unless they're asking me for guidance and direction, and I'm more than happy to give counsel, because I still have an element of responsibility there, but that key, the keys to those kids, even though I, I have some responsibility there, who holds the keys over those little children? My, their parents do. So my job as a grandparent is to help support them however they would like me to help them. Acts is that support, yeah. Yeah. I, I know that when my parents were serving missions, the blessings that we have of turning to our, our kids and saying, this is where grandma and grandpa are, here's what they're doing. Even though they're not here now, they had a greater impact uh, uh, by them serving missions, maybe than them coming to visit. That, that would have had eternal, eternal responsibilities there. I think we always have keys there, but the harder part is... Uh, and I think back to something I've said before. I remember being called 
as a bishop and the state president sitting down with me and saying, looking me right in the eyes, and he said, you are the judge in Israel, not me. You are the one to make welfare decisions about writing the checks, not me. Now, there'll be some accountability with me in terms of, let's talk about that. He says, but at the end of the day, if you feel like as the judge in Israel that it's your job and there's a need and you want to write the check, he says, I won't second guess that. Because you're the judge, not me. That's been delegated into your hands. I'm supposed to be a support and a counsel and advice, but there's something very, very powerful about a bishop within a ward who holds those ultimate responsibilities. And I think that sometimes that as a parent, as a grandparent, we're to be a support, but we're not to step over our bounds because there are other people with keys. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Did you say financially you were not responsible? Financially, I was. Financially, financially, he, the, the state president has some accountability as to the, the monies that are being spent, but in terms of the judge in Israel, that's the bishop. And the, gyp, and the bishop is the one that has the check. And if under the inspiration of the Lord, he's supposed to write a check for this purpose or that, the, my state president said, I won't second guess you. If, you. if you were felt impressed to do that, then you'll do that. Because those are your keys. And he recognized that those are the keys. It's a very sacred responsibility given to bishops. It's one of the reasons why if I'm always somewhere in the bishop walks in the room, I stand up. <laughs> Just because I, I think there's that kind of... Um, do them. Okay. Now, that said, let's talk about how those keys then roll forward. Um, by the way, this is actually a, a picture. We were talking earlier about it. This was actually a picture taken uh, during the uh, uh, this last hurricane, Hurricane Sandy. Okay, that I thought provides a perfect backdrop for what we're talking about. Uh, guess where the picture was taken? With a telescope, yeah. Where's the location of the, the lighthouse? Cleveland. Cleveland. In other, and, and there were 22-foot waves in Chicago. And so sometimes, and so there's a lesson here that says we think the storms are out there somewhere. Sometimes the storms are going to be much closer and have a much greater impact closer to home than you think. Okay, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Next week we're going to talk more about the second coming. It'll be one of those Wahoo lessons. Okay, so I want you to turn though to uh, verse 5, section 90. So, so he's gonna. He's telling Joseph, uh, the keys of this kingdom shall never be taken from you. By the way, I, I just find it fascinating. It's fun to read the like uh, writings of Brigham Young, and he talked about that for years. And Heber C. Kimball reported the same thing for years. Joseph Smith kept coming back to them on a regular basis, coming across the plains. Once they got out to Salt Lake, Joseph Smith was always there, giving the counsel and advice and everything. And I think it was in 1880, Joseph dies in 1844, 1880, Heber C. Kimball says, you know, I haven't seen Joseph Smith for about 10 years or so. 
He's, he's coming on a regular basis, giving them counsel, giving them advice. And for him to say in 1880, it's been a while since I've seen Joseph Smith. <laughs> yeah. Because Joseph was still directing the church and, and, he, and teaching and preparing and training Brigham Young. And Brigham Young would have questions, and Joseph would come and, and keep him on track. Okay? Joseph, and, and Joseph's still pretty busy, still pretty involved. Okay? So the keys will never be kingdom, or will be taken from you. Okay, now, five. All they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them. Now, what's an oracle? And it's not the really old lady in the, in the Matrix movies. Okay. Who, what, what's an oracle? Revelations. It's revelations. A seer. Yes, a mouthpiece. Now, it's, it's interesting. In my research on this, because I had the same question, I found an equal amount of, I was a little confused for a little bit, because I found an equal amount of explanations saying an oracle is the actual revelations, and then an equal amount saying the oracle is the mouthpiece, the person. And then I realized, after I spent like a couple of days wondering which one it was, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's the oracle and the mouthpiece. It is the revelations and the revelator. So beware of how you hold these revelations. Beware of how you hold the revelations coming from the revelator. Does that make sense? So the answer is yes, it's both. So with that in mind, and all they who receive the oracles of God, let them beware how they hold them, lest they are accounted as a light thing and are brought under condemnation thereby. Now, the Lord is going to begin... There's an amazing little... It's always amazing to me. The more that I study this stuff and you watch what the Lord is doing and how He weaves images back and forth to teach us things. Not just on a logical side, but on an emotional side. And He's going to do this amazing mix of things and if you're not careful, you'll miss it. Okay? Beware how you hold the oracles of God. And if you, if, you, if you do it lightly, you're brought under condemnation and stumble and fall when the storms descend and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon their house. Now he's starting to use an image to have you understand what happens if you treat the oracles, the revelations and the revelators lightly. And he's going to use an image. When the storms descend, the winds blow, the rains descend, and beat upon their house. Now, have we heard this image before? Okay. You will because this image is used in every standard work that we have. I found it in the Old Testament. I found it in the New Testament. I found it in the Doctrine and Covenants. I found it in the Book of Mormon. And any time, this is one of those only other ones... Uh, when I start seeing it in every set of scriptures, it's like, okay, pay attention. The Lord really wants us to get this. Okay? Now, let's hop over. I want to hit the first one. First one is Matthew seven twenty four. If you've got your Bible, you can hop over to that. Matthew seven twenty four. Uh, okay. So you want to read that? Sure. Okay. Therefore, whosoever 
Okay, now stop for a sec. What, thing, what sayings is he talking about? You have to go back just a little bit, and he's going to say... Yeah. And the saying's just ahead of this. He's going to say, Not everyone uh, that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, and doeth my will. But the, he that doeth the will, and many will prophesy, didn't we do all these great things? I'll profess I never knew them. Depart from me. And then he's going to say... Therefore, whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, now he's going to give you an image. I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Okay? And the rain descended and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto the foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Okay, that's the same image that he's using in section 90. But I want you to sharpen a little bit, because he's talking about, in 90 we're talking about the, those that hold on to the oracles, the revelations, the scriptures. Now he's talking about these saints, but he's going to give you a little bit more information. Okay? Uh, I would liken him unto a wise man. And he's going to build his house on a rock. What's the rock? The Savior. The Savior's going to give his words to, through the revelator, who's then going to write it down. That's the scriptures. So what he's saying to you is, build your house on this rock. The saints, my saints. Okay, build everything that you do around this. Okay, rain descended and the floods came. Uh... And everyone that heareth these sayings and doeth them not will be likened unto a foolish man that built his house upon the sand. Now, by the way, I'll just pop back here for a second. I don't want to overwhelm you too much, but I just think this is fascinating to me. Helaman, five. Remember, this is the rock of our Redeemer, who's the Christ. You must build your foundation. And then he's going to make it even more... Where did the rains come from? Where did the floods came from? Yeah. Look at this. When the devil shall send his mighty winds, his shafts in the whirlwind, then all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, and it'll have no power over you too. Because he's taking the image one step forward. So you picture this. Okay, here's this rock, and, and this is rock. It does, go, not going anywhere. It's coming from the revelations of the Lord, and there it is. I'm going to build my house on top of this rock. I'm going to make this my foundation. And then, who's sending the rains and the floods? Devil. Devil saying he's blowing all this up. And he says, and if you didn't build it on a rock, if you build it on sand, where does the house go? Look at this. And Helaman takes it one step farther. He says, oh yeah, if it goes off that rock then, this mighty storm, it'll have no power to drag you down into a gulf of misery an endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is the sure foundation, a foundation wherein, whereon if men build, they cannot fail. Wow. And the house that we're strengthening is our physical body. It's not a building. It's us. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that in a second. This now has layers about what it is that what we're building on and what the house is and what we're actually building on. This is so wrought with so much symbolism. It's just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And I think that the, the 
He wants us to be miserable like he is. Everything, and because I think it's interesting, sometimes it's just rain that beats upon us. And how many of you have been through like a really bad stretch and a bad year and it just seems like the rain doesn't stop? It just wait. I just like it to quit. I just like to catch my breath. And, and then right in the middle of the bad stretch and you get a flat tire and you're going, really? Lord, again? And then somebody might stop and help you. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I, I mentioned before. We had a we had a stretch a few years ago where uh, my uh, my daughter-in-law was in a in a really bad accident, and uh, that right as we were going to get her mother to come help take care of her, that the the water heater blew, and there's water gushing down our our uh, garage and down the street. I mean, it's just. And it's just like, how bad can it get? And we're just in the middle of that. And right in the middle of that, we get a knock on the door. And here is, and here is this wonderful sister that's just moved from New Orleans to escape Katrina where her house was destroyed. She shows up on our doorstep with this massive tin of jambalaya. Homemade jambalaya. And it was incredible. And you just get this little... Coming from somebody who just lost her home. And she says, I, I, I figured you guys would need this. Really? You know, you're just kind of in an apartment because you lost your home. And so somewhere in that, and, and, she's, and she's falling, she's doing what the Savior would do. I think she's built on a rock. And so you're right, I think sometimes we miss those, those kind of things. Um, now, that's why I think if we come back here, listen to what he's saying. Those who receive the oracles, let them beware and that they, that they don't stumble and fall when the storms descend and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon your house. The winds blowing with the other scripture was said where it says shaft and a little wind. Tornadoes can put a piece of hay through a board. So when you look at how a whirlwind or a tornado really is, the power that you need to be built and the strength that you need is not just a... It can hold up under that. It is powerful. You need to be... If it can put a strong power... I, I... Yeah. agree with that completely. Okay, now. Let me take this one step farther. and Let's go back to section 88. Because all of this is built on, here, here, if these guys hold the keys, and if you're going to trust these keys, and you're going to trust the revelation, and you're going to trust the ones receiving the revelation, and you're going to now begin to put together a house that can withstand tornadoes, that can withstand hurricanes, which can, or can just withstand the gentle rain that just doesn't seem to stop. Now, he's going to describe this and he's going to say, verse 19, in section 88, organize yourself. Here's what this rock, this is what this house will look like if it's built on a rock. Okay? 
Organize yourself. Prepare every needful thing. Establish a house. What kind of house? House of prayer. And in other words, you're just going to give these pieces. Now, by the way, I know that this was specifically given about the Kirtland Temple. And we're going to talk more about the temple as we get closer. But I, I want you to think today about your own individual circumstance. And if you're building a house on a rock that withstands the storm, listen to the pieces that go into this. Okay? You're going to establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting. We talked before the fact that fasting, section 58 says fasting is rejoicing. So this is to be a house of rejoicing, house of gratitude. A house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. And then if you get these images of what this house would look like, and you say, yeah, but if you saw my house today, you would go away. Okay. Being somebody who's not a housekeeper, notice that a house of order is the very last. If you look at them in order, number one is prayer. Oh, that's good. Second, fasting. Third, faith. Fourth, learning, glory, and work. <laughs> Kimberly, that is pretty darn good. And, and you kind of get this going up, don't you? We pray, we're grateful, we build our faith. Because of that, we can learn, we receive glory. That creates order, and that is the house of God. That's awesome. I have not seen a sequential, but that's right off. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. First things first. Because sisters, you know, and you, you're inflicted more of this than guys. Okay, like, organize myself. That means another ten lists, and i got to make sure they get all this stuff done so I can be more efficient. And we said organize, and I love that prayer, so that priorities, which says I get the important things done. Otherwise, you drive yourself nuts. So it's the needful thing. Ah, Okay. Okay, does that make sense? Can this house withhold, can it protect itself from the storms? That Satan is going to throw at you. And by the way, again, if you, if you don't build on this house, then where does he want to say you go? Into that gulf of misery. Can you see the imagery? It's just beautiful. Yeah.
for her needs. And, um, and she was able to give an awesome conference address because of that. I, I love that. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting where it says establish. Uh-huh. Because I think a lot of times we organize and we prepare, but we never quite get around to establishing that house to starting it. We intended to establish. Right, right. But we just never got, got around to doing it. Okay. Now, here's one of the reasons why I think we struggle. Because a lot of times it's like, we, we now look at ourselves and we go, yeah, but you ought to see my house, you ought to see my organization, and see what's going on in my life. I've intended a hundred times to lose weight or to reorganize stuff, or, and I'm just not doing it. Okay? Let me take this one step farther from Brother Millet. Every person builds a house of faith. We do so knowingly or unknowingly. You ever think of that? You're going to build a house regardless. Every builder soon learns that a good building with a bad foundation is worse than useless. It's dangerous. Anybody ever had foundation work on your house? Costs a lot, huh? But it's important because what happens? If you've if you got a bad foundation... Because all of Texas is built on sifting sand, right? Mine's built on rock. Yours built on rock? White rock. White rock? Oh, there you go. I just know that at one point we were looking at uh, actually uh, building a house in St. George. And we were having to factor in the, the cost of building a house. You've got to have dynamite to blast through the volcanic rock to actually build your thing there. Okay, In Texas, we don't have to worry about that because we're built on clay. We just kind of move a lot and then our houses move and then the foundations move and then these cracks start showing up in our walls and doors don't slam anymore. <laughs> it's worse than useless, it's dangerous. One Christian writer has observed if the stability of buildings depends largely on their foundations, so does the stability of human lives. The search for personal security is a primal instinct but many fail to find it today. Old familiar landmarks will be obliterated. Moral absolutes, which were once thought to be eternal, are being abandoned. Okay? One of the, one of the campaign mantras that I keep hearing is that somehow what's being said in, is a war on women. What they're really saying is it's a war on abortion. And we're trying to make it a war on abortion rights. We should have a right to abort. And that becomes a war on women. Okay? But to be fair, that's not the only issue. No, but it's the one that, that is, is put forward a lot. If you're going to be pro-life, it's a war on women. It's a war on freedom. I'm, I'm, I actually am now responding to people who talk about this war on women and say, we do not have a war on women, we have a war on children. Yeah, or, or like, who was it, uh, President Uchtdorf? No, who was it? A, a conference that said children have a right to be born? Elder Oaks. Yes, yes, Elder Oaks. Okay. Moral absolutes were once thought to be eternal are being abandoned. And listen, Brother Millet, and I thought this was powerful. Thus our house of faith can, can be no more secure than the foundation upon which it's built. Foolish men build on the sifting sands of ethics and the marshlands of human philosophies and doctrines. How to, if we're going to build on ethics, we're going to build on pop culture, how often does that shift? 
How about, how about your, your teen girls who are saying, okay, this is what I'm now supposed to wear to school. Okay? And then, and then out comes another movie or another pop star and it's like, okay, we're not supposed to wear that anymore. Now we're all supposed to wear this. That's supposed to dictate who we are and how we function. And, and sifting sands and ethics. And if we're trying to build our house on logic and ethics instead of moral absolutes, but the problem is that people are, if you're going to be righteous and if you're going to hold to moral standards, the people on the other side of that are going to say, you scare me because you're going to judge me. Because people that are righteous are judgmental. And I don't want to be judged. Don't judge me. I want to wear whatever I wear, do whatever I do, you know, and if I just walk naked, don't judge me. And, and the sense that they're getting is, even if we're not judgmental, they're judging themselves and not us. Right. Okay? Sorry. That's what I was going to say. They don't like it because they have to judge themselves. Yeah, and they don't want to be judged. I want to feel okay about what I'm doing and anything that might suggest that what I'm doing is wrong. I'm building my house on sand. And it just keeps moving. And it freaks me out. Okay? On the sifting sands of ethics and the marshlands of human philosophies and doctrines. The wise build upon the rock of revelation, heeding carefully the living oracles, lest they be brought under condemnation and stumble and fall when the storms descend and the winds blow and the rains descend and beat upon their house. Now, sometimes I hear that within the church. That if, if we're not careful sometimes, uh, we can become buffet Mormons. And we're just going to go to the buffet and pick and choose what is comfortable to us and leave out what is not comfortable to us. I like this one, I like that one, that one drives me nuts, I'll leave that one out. Uh, I'll attend this meeting. I like sacrament meeting, I hate Relief Society. I won't go to Relief Society, but I will go to sacrament meeting. I will, I will do this, I will do that, I, I refuse to do that. I'm just going to pick and choose. And it's based on whose ethics? Fine. I get to pick and choose. That one gets us in trouble a lot, I think. Okay? Alright, questions on that? See how much stuff is in here? We've got, what, five verses in? In 90? Alright. All that we do as members of the church must be built upon a foundation of faith and testimony and conversion. Because the storms are coming. And they're going to increase in intensity. And, and we're going to find out how our house is. By how strong. Isn't that when you usually find out how, how strongly houses were built in the neighborhood? Don't you usually find out about the time the tornado shows up? Or who, who's safe and who's not? Okay. All right. Kevin, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, but it, but hang on. One on we're, wait till we get one on one. It's getting worse. It's just going to get worse. Okay. So ultimately, when we talk about the, this idea of the organizing your house, now I'll go back to to Wendy. What you were saying. Here's the levels. 
I think when, we're, when we talk about building a temple, build on strong foundations, it's a house of order, it's a house of God, it's all of those things. And then our family. And it right comes down to our personal life. How is our personal life built? On what foundation do we stand? And a lot of times we don't know what, how, where we're standing until the storms come, do we? How am I doing? Okay, I'm going through adversity. I get a chance to find out how strong is my faith. Do I really question? Can I handle this? Do I start, do I start struggling? And remember it was the prophet, prophet Joseph who said to his apostles, uh, to the disciples, uh, if you cannot handle this kind of adversity, then you will not be fit to stand in the kingdom. Then he said, God will wrench your very heartstrings. I think sometimes in the church, in the course of a life, he wrenches our very heartstrings. And we find out how, where our faith is. How converted are we? Yeah. I, I think that's why we should pray for the Father. We, we pray to the Father a lot. But I think we should also pray for the Father. And I think we should pray for the Savior. And we should pray for Joseph Smith. You know, we, we um, I, I always tell my Relief Society president, I pray more for her than anybody else. But she needs she it. stands, the Relief Society stands, so. But we, but you know, like, gee, to be Heavenly Father, wow, his heartstrings have to be tugged so often that it's just, yeah, it's just heartbreaking to, to think what he lives through. It's that's a that's a great point, Kevin, because because th that's why I love it in uh, Moses when he says, you know, when he's looking at the flood and he's looking at all these people dying, and it says he wept and all eternity shook. There is a power behind that depth of uh, that's a that's a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Yeah, but, but, but it's just kind of continually... But, you know, in other words, we think about uh, maybe a good analogy around here. At the, uh, especially in the summer, what are we supposed to do with our foundations? Water. Yeah, we're watering cement. Go figure. That's because if we don't, it will crack under the shifting sand. And I like that daily watering thing. Yeah. Um, you've got this beautiful picture of a plan there. And uh -huh. I think a lot of times... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're so Building the house. The Lord is going to be, he's going to knock out walls and it's going to hurt and he's in charge. Hold on. We just need to go on for that ride. C.S. Lewis is coming. But it's not the quote you think it is. I almost used that one, but I've used it before. So I found one. So he's coming. Okay, so how are we going to do this? 
How are we going to do this? And get somebody to turn to section uh, 9024. Who's got that? Okay. Go ahead. Okay, now, this is kind of an important one because this is a scripture that we've heard before, but we don't always hear the, the second part of this. And I think it's going to be, I think it's an important part of building the house. Okay? Search always. Pray diligently. Search diligently. Search diligently. Pray always. And be believing. And all things will, shall work together for your good if... So it's like, these things will happen. That would be wonderful. If, and then we're going to get two qualifiers. If, you do what? Walk uprightly. Keep the commandments. And remember the covenant that you made with one another. Right? What covenant is that? This is, this is section 90. We just have to go backwards just a little bit. Remember what we were talking about last week. And, and I was thinking about it. We, we read some more records into our ward yesterday and we sustained some people. And we raised our arm to the square and we said basically, Art thou a brother or brethren? You know, I covenant with you. Remember this one? Okay, section 88. Um, hold on. Before I get to that one. Let's go back to one uh, section eighty-eight, and it was one thirty-three. Art thou a brother or brethren? Here's here's the covenant with which they have come one to another. Uh, I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token of remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you, new member. I receive you, new Relief Society president. Whatever that is, I receive you. Uh, to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable. To be your friend and brother or sister through the grace of God in the bonds of love. To walk in the commandments of God blameless and faithful. That's woo. Imagine if we did that. That's the covenant he's talking about. Search always. Pray diligently. Pray diligently. Search always. Search always. Pray diligently and be believing. And all things will work together for your good if you walk uprightly and you remember this covenant. Now, here comes, let me come back to here. Because he's about to do an interesting, I want you to go to uh, 88.24. Because this is one of the more this is one of those times that I look at something, I look at something, I look at something, and then it really kind of finally jumps out at me, and I just go, "Wow, that is really cool." Now, once you see how this works, section Because it's going to look like he's talking about two different things. Okay? So let's take the first one. Cease to be idle 
cease to be unclean, wait, cease to find fault with one another. That seems to be more about other people. The first one's about me. Okay. Oh, cease to find fault with another. Oh, wait. Cease to sleep longer than is needful. Retire to thy bed early that you may not be weary. Arise early that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated. Okay, that's nice. And he's going to say, and above all things, clothe yourself with a bond of charity as with a mantle, which is a bond of perfectness and peace. We got two things going on here, right? That's kind of odd to mix these two together. You know, he's going to say, cease to be idle, cease to be unclean, uh, go to bed early, arise early, your bodies and minds will be invigorated. Oh, wait a minute. On top of that, uh, clothe yourself in the bond of charity, don't find fault with one another. He seems to be mixing two messages at the same time. Take care of me, but somehow I'm supposed to have charity for these other people. What's he doing? To then help other people. Yes. And so that, that's why I say it starts to come together. And you know where that, and there is a key word in here that brings all of that together. And until I found, until I got the explanation behind this word, it finally clicked for me. You know what the word is? Mantle. And I went back and looked at the Hebrew roots of the word mantle. You know what mantle is? It is a thick blanket. Like a quilt. Now, clothe yourself in a what? In a mantle, in a thick quilt. Cover yourself. And once you have done that and you go to bed early and you rise, what are you doing? You're resting. You're taking care of yourself. You're in a state of rest. And then arise early. So that you can do what? Serve. Does that make sense? Now, let me take this analogy one step farther, though. Because this idea of a covering, of a cloak, has a much deeper meaning to it. When we use the word, remember that the, the original idea, the only place in the Old Testament the word atonement is used, is it's the covering that was placed around the ark. It was the covering of all the holes on the ark. It's kapoor. It's the kaput. It's the hat. It's the covering. It's the coat of skins. The, the mantle, the covering is what? The atonement. Be wrapped in the atonement. And be at rest and sleep and recover and come into God's rest. And then once you've done that, then what? Then what? Wrap yourself in that atonement as with a mantle which is a bond of perfectness and peace. And now what am I going to do? Serve. And by the way, if I'm doing that and I've created the house and I'm in the house wrapped in here, haven't, hasn't my house become a perfect place of refuge? 
for anybody else that's struggling. When, when the rains descend and they're lost, they can come to my house and I will keep them safe and I will keep them protected. And I will teach them what? How to also be wrapped in the mantle. How to also be wrapped in the tongue. How to also be covered. Beautiful knowledge. And, I, and it, the fact that is it, in these two revelations is it mixes with this idea of building your house on a rock and, and taking care of yourself and allowing yourself to rest. In, in a sense, we talk about Sunday being a day of rest, and it seems like we have more meetings and we're busier on Sunday than any other day. But it's supposed to be a day of rest. It's a day of covering, mantelizing, if you will. Is that same covering the same word that we use for covering the ark? It's, it's, it's not the exact same word. Uh, it is, by the way, it is a female word, too, though. It's that sense of covering. Okay? Now, with that said, now it's time for C.S. Lewis. Cannot talk about this without turning over to uh, Elder C.S. Lewis. Make no mistake, Christ would say, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourselves in my hand, that is what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand, I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest nor let you rest until you are literally perfect. Until my Father can say without reservation that He is well pleased with you as He said He was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. Think of the mantle. God's demand for perfection need not discourage you in the least, in your present attempts to be good, or even in your present failures. Each time you fall, he will pick you up again, and he knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. Let me say that one again. He knows perfectly well that your own efforts are never going to bring you anywhere near perfection. On the other hand, you must realize from the onset that the goal toward which he is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And no power in the whole universe except you yourself can prevent him from taking you to that goal. That is what you are in for. When I picture kind of building my house on a rock, being wrapped in the perfectness of that mantle and building a house of order, that's what I picture. That I will do it, order means I will do it according to His order, not mine. His plans, not mine. His blueprints, not mine. His goal for my house.
It's not mine. But I've got to let him do it. And so often we're the ones that stand in the way with our stubborn pride about what we think it should be, what we think we should be doing, what should go on my checklist for the day. And he says, let me do it. That's what you're in for. And you can either fight him and become an enemy to God, or you can go with it and let him mold you into everything that he has in mind. And his house will be a much more magnificent house than the one you've got in mind. So, I bear you my testimony. It's our job to follow the oracles. If we will build our house on his sayings and sacrifice all that we are, to be what he wants us to be, he will take over. That's what he means us to be. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we have a prayer. Oh, okay. How much do you want? Nice. That went well.